0: together. We thank you for your love for us and that uh, you gave your son for us. And Father, I thank you that because you gave your son for us, we have a relationship with you because our sins are forgiven and we can now understand and grow in the grace and knowledge of your son through your word. And I pray as we look into your word today that you would help us understand this passage exactly as you uh, intended so that we would obey all that your son has revealed in your word. We pray for that. So we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've looked at a website for a typical evangelical church these days, you will find that uh, almost 90 percent of the time, maybe 95% of the time, that their mission statement will be the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. That's really almost universal within the evangelical church these days. Uh, The mission of the church is the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. The Great Commandment obviously being we should love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and soul, Uh, but then the Great Commission is what we're going to look at today. As we began this church, as we're planning this church in the East Coast, I felt it would be wise for us to gain a picture of what we should be doing. It's so easy to get off and do this and that and whatever it might be, but we need to follow the Lord's instructions. And indeed, the Great Commission has been quite misunderstood for many years. There are some who take it simply as a call to evangelize the world. Now, we know that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And there are some that take it as discipleship only. And there are some who believe that every single person in the church should be doing exactly what is said in the Great Commission. Well, is that the case? What is the Great Commission, and how does it apply to us? What did our Lord intend... When he shared this final command that he had in the book of Matthew, uh, what did he intend? What is this great commission? That's our word for it, the great commission. What, What is this? It behooves us to know because so much of what we should be doing is based on what we'll see today. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to the end of the book of Matthew. And I hope we will gain a more biblical understanding of the Great Commission. I believe our view of the Great Commission has been uh, skewed. Uh, and, you know, not always... Oh, there's a spider on my notes. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to get to the word there. All right. Well, um, I believe our, the Great Commission has been skewed. And Satan's very crafty. Uh we see this all the time in our society these days, especially within the news, where certain portions are omitted and other portions are made larger. And what it does, it doesn't change the wording, but it changes the meaning. And that's what happens when bad guys get into the church, when Satan distracts people to their desires, biblically speaking, whichever direction it might be, and rather than just, as we will see, obeying what Jesus said. So with that in mind, again, turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 20. Now, when I taught the book of Matthew, did this in two weeks, so we're not going to be here for two hours. So I'm not going to be uh, going through exactly as in detail as I did went through the book of Matthew. You can go get those sermons and look at those. But this is the end of a fantastic book, the book of Matthew. Uh, in this book, King Jesus has come to his own, those sitting in darkness, And they're sitting in the shadow of death. They're sitting in their sin, and a great light shined upon them. The Lord was in their midst. God took on human flesh, and the the Word uh, took on human flesh and dwelt among them. And with the Lord's teaching, he confronted their wrong thinking, exposing their sin, revealing himself as the Christ, as the King, as the Son of God and the only Savior, and calling upon them to repent and believe in him For salvation. But the Jews, that foolish and evil and adulterous generation, and their leaders rejected Jesus. And they delivered him up to the hands of godless men to be crucified. And thus but the Lord's plan was in spite of that to use man's evil to bring about the greatest good, that he would die for our sins and bring forgiveness of sins. He would bear our sins in his body on the cross. Now he hung on the cross and bore our sins and he was in the Lord we see the father made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him 2 Corinthians 5:21 And we know that everything that Matthew had written about was bringing about the culmination of what he declared in the very first chapter And chapter 121, verse 121, And she will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. That means the Lord, the I am his salvation. Uh, For it is he who will save his people from their sins. And it all happened on the cross. That salvation was made possible through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see in this final chapter, after being buried, he rose from the dead. Amazing chapter. And then we have... uh, These uh, evil men trying to make a a deal, in a sense, to ignore the obvious. And they rejected the obvious of what, that he had risen from the dead. And then we have our passage. So let me start back in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, this is Matthew 28, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We can stop right there. I think it's pretty clear if we just read it. If we don't overemphasize or underemphasize things, I think we can understand this passage. Now, again, I'm not going to get into all the details as I did when we went through the book of Matthew. You can get those sermons. But we see here that our passage begins with a contrast. But the 11 disciples, that's mine is Judas, right? Uh, proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Remember, uh, the ladies were supposed to tell them to stay with them in Galilee, Remember? That they would see him, right? And they proceeded. They went to a mountain which Jesus designated. And here we have, uh, during the 40-day period, Scripture reveals that Jesus appeared to many people, over 500 at one time. And it's possible that this is that time that that occurred. But we're going to see the focus is not the main group, which of some of them doubt it. The focus is the 11 in which he spoke to them, as you're going to see. That's the focus, So sometime in the middle of the 40 days after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, before he ascended, uh, it would have taken some time for the disciples to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee. Sometime in that, within that, something of 15 to 25 days, Jesus appeared to them on the mountain which he had designated. And notice what our passage says, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Now we already know that Jesus addressed Thomas, we know that. Uh, He doubted, but he said, here, touch here, look here, hey, flesh and bone, right? He was alive, he'd risen from the dead. Now it's quite possible, this is most likely the appearance where there were 500 who saw him, as I mentioned. And obviously within a group of 500, there'd be some who would be doubtful. But I don't believe the 11 were doubtful at all, as we're going to say. I believe they believed. I believe they believed. And so it's reasonable, some were doubtful in that context, but here we see that he appeared to them. And it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Matthew wants us to see that he is God. Only God is is to be worshipped. If he wasn't God, he would have said, no, no, like the angel in Revelation, don't do that, worship God. Jesus Christ is God, and if, he, and if he isn't God, then he doesn't have all authority, as we're going to see. But he is. And so they worshipped him. They acknowledged his deity and worshipped him. And that's the first point we need to know about the Great Commission. That the one who is commissioning us, as we'll see his church, is God. It is Jesus, God in human flesh, who died and rose from the dead. And like I've been sharing as we've been going through Colossians, we're gaining a better picture of the Jesus that we follow. He is God, worthy of worship. Worthy of worship. For those who say, oh, he's not God, well then, why is he being worshipped? He is God in human flesh who died for our sins and rose from the dead, glorified. And so now, what happens at this point? We come to this command that we have. And within this command, it is so misunderstood, I've got to break down the grammar for us so that we can gain an understanding for it, about it, so that we do not base our lives on a wrong understanding of something. How horrible would that, how satanic would that be to misunderstand a verse and then live your life following a misunderstanding? Wow, that's the Satan's perverse delight. But yet we're responsible. We are to handle the word accurately. And I believe most of the misunderstandings we have fall into our fleshly desires at times, and we go with those, rather than obeying what God has said clearly. And we'll see that this is a clear passage. So I want to show you, first of all, there is one main command in this uh, passage. And one imperative verb, And it is in verse 19, and it is to make disciples. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. That's the main command. Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Here we go. We have one main command. Now, in our English translations, it appears that we have two commands. An imperative command to go. And an imperative command to make disciples. Well, that's really not the case in the Greek language. And I'll explain that for you because it's very complex. And we'll look at other passages that help us understand this so you're not taking my word for it. So we have here, go therefore and make disciples. But really, as we're going to see, there's one command to make disciples. We'll see that this uh, go is a participle. And we'll see there's a form that's used here that is helpful for us. Now, you might remember that the term disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes. It simply speaks of a learner or one who places himself under someone else willingly to learn from them. If you want to be a disciple of some type of whatever it might be, you might place yourself under an expert to learn from them. And here we are disciples of the Lord Jesus, disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so it is one who places himself under the authority of another to learn. And you might remember that Jesus' larger group of disciples desired to learn from him and obey him. And then we have Jesus choosing 12. After Judas betrayed him, we have 11 remaining. He betrayed him and had his suicide, 11 remaining. Now, let's look more in depth at the grammar here. and We're going to go into that a little because it's really important. If we're going to base the church on how we do things on this verse, we better have it right. We better have it right. That means we have to have teachers who are handling the word accurately and teaching you that. uh, And there's a great responsibility to do so. So we have this one made verb to make disciples from verses 19 to 20. And then we have three participles. Three. Now, participles, by and large, are verb forms that usually do not stand on their own, they modify other elements of grammar. Now in English, we often have participles in ING. ING. If I say, running to the store, I, I, that doesn't, that's not a complete sentence. Running is a participle, but if I say, I was, now I put a verb in there, it's modifying that. So we have three participles, and let me point them out what they are. The first one is go. That's a participle. It's translated go. There may be a note in your Bible, going or having gone, there may be. Go therefore, make disciples, that's the main verb. And then of all the nations, the second participle is baptizing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then the third participle is teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I command. You've got three participles centered around the main verb. I'm going to get a little technical here, but hopefully it'll make sense when I finish. So hang in there. So first of all, I need to ask the question, why do so many English translations translate this first participle as go rather than having gone? It's an error's participle. Why do they do that? Or why do they do it? Why do they say, have, instead of having gone, why do they say Go. I believe this is one of the reasons that we get distracted in this passage and get mixed up, by the way. Now, the short answer is that not always, but most often, when an aorist participle precedes an aorist imperative, now just hold on there, you good Greek lesson. It is what Greek grammar guys call attendant circumstance. Okay? Just share that with you. What does that mean? Theoretically, the attendant circumstance participle that is used is used to communicate an action that is somehow related to the main verb but not necessarily dependent on the verb. And so in this form, it would take on the basic mood of the verb. So it's going to take on the mood of imperative. So the going has that sense of a going, yes, in in an imperative command, and that's probably why they've translated it that way. So translators have taken that imperative mood of the command and said go rather than having gone. Having gone doesn't sound very imperative. Go sounds imperative, doesn't it? So, but it's important to remember that this intended circumstance is very, is very important to understand. I understand why they've done that, but it's my contention that by and large the church has thus misemphasized the passage and given the same value to having gone as make disciples. They have made those two, two separate things go, number one, go do that, evangelism, right? And then, two, make disciples. The church has done that. Now, we're going to talk about this. We are to evangelize. We're, we're going to see that. We're going to see that there are even evangelists. There is a gifting that no one can be a disciple unless they've been baptized, affirming that they've been saved, and someone's got to share the gospel with them. How can they believe without a preacher? That's implied here. We're going to see that. We need to be careful not to overemphasize or underemphasize something. So this attendance for circumstance grammatically points to two things that need to be remembered. First of all, it's often used to introduce a new action or new shift. When you have this idea of a, of a participle and a verb in this, this this connection, it's starting a new part, starting a new thing, okay? Secondly, and more importantly, it is understand universally within grammat- gr- grammaticians, grammaticians, I don't know what they're called, uh, smart guys, that the greater emphasis is to be put on the action of the main verb than the participle. That's understood throughout the board. So then, this term go does not carry the same weight as make disciples. Okay? So what I'm trying to say, if you're going to translate it, go therefore make disciples, that's fine. But understand the main focus is making disciples. Okay? and there's less emphasis on the subordinate. I want to give you some examples from scripture that are very helpful so you don't just hear from my perspective. Indeed, in the book of Matthew we have the very same grammatical instru- construction throughout and I'm going to share some examples of that, okay? Go back to Matthew chapter 2 verse 8. And you'll see that yes you do need to go, but that's not the point. The going is not the point. The going is the main verb as we're going to say. This is when Herod, the bad guy, was telling the, uh, the people to go search for the Christ he, so that he could worship him. No, he doesn't want to worship him at all. He wants to kill him. But here's how he says it, synchromatical construction. He says in, in Matthew 2, verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, or literally eris participle, having gone, you could say it, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found a report to me that I may him worship him. Now, obviously, the focus is not going, but you do have to go, right? The focus is making careful search. That's what he wants them to do. If you wanted to focus on the going, also, you would say, in an imperative sense, Jesus could say it this way, imperative command, go and make careful search. That would make them the same. But in this way, going, make careful search, because you've got to go first, right? Another example here, look at um, Matthew 9.13. Jesus is reproving the Pharisees, and the focus here is not on the going, as you're going to see, but actually learning what the phrase "I desire compassion" to mean means. Matthew 9, 13. But go, or having gone, or, or literally going, ing, going, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. The going's not the point. It's learn what it means. Right? We can see that in this gra- in this grammar. How about chapter eleven, verse fourteen? Chapter eleven, verse fourteen, we have here uh, Jesus tells his disciples to report back to him concerning John the Baptist's question while imprisoned, whether he was the expected one or not. And so they're to report back to to John the Baptist. So what does he say here? Uh, Eleven four. And Jesus answers to them, Go and report to John what you've heard, what you hear and see. The main focus is reporting what you hear and see. But you got to go to do it, right? You got to go to do it. But that's not the main focus. That's not the main focus. Okay. So we have these examples of the exact same attendant circumstance, eris participle imperative uh, verb. Okay. Those same things. So that's helpful to us. So reporting back is right there, and that one is not the is the, is the focus, not uh, not the going. So back in our passage, same construction. Therefore, go. Therefore, because all authority has been given to him, we'll see that in a minute, go and make disciples of all the nations. So in this point, in all these attendant circumstances, the focus is not the going. Make careful search. Learn what it means. Report to John. Make disciples. That's the focus. So why do translators translate it go rather than having gone? They want to relay the attendant circumstance here because that going does pick up the imperativeness of of that command. Okay, but it's just not as 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 valuable in terms of its weight. You see what I'm saying? So we got to understand that. But unfortunately, this has caused many to misinterpret and give equal emphasis grammatically to the go and the make disciples. The going here, uh, excuse me. Uh, they're not equal. The command to make is to make disciples, not to go. You've got to go to make disciples, right? But if the command is not to make disciples, the command is to go, or excuse me, is, is to make disciples, but not to go. I'll say that correctly. So uh, I've translated this this way. Literally, having gone or going, going, you better do it, you better go, make disciples. That's the key. That's the key. So with that in mind, if you want to put go in there and make disciples, that's fine. Those translations are fine as long as you understand that the weight is not on the go, the weight is on to make disciples. It's fine to say go, but as long as you understand that, go, make disciples. Go, get the car fixed. You know what I'm saying? There's a, that's really what's going on. Okay, so with that in mind, we see that in this context. So with that in mind, I want to share... Uh, also, something else that's really important, you say, oh, no, no more Greek grammar. I don't want to hear that. Um, but it's important to realize there's also two more participles here also. There's that first one, and there's the second two. Look at our passage. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Here we have the two ING participles, we this baptizing and teaching. Those are dependent on the command to make disciples. When you say make disciples, you say baptizing. When you say make disciples, you say teaching. They're connected. That's how it's done. That's how it's done, as we'll see. And so then we have the first main point of the Great Commission, as we see, we are to make disciples. That's the focus. The focus of the Great Commission is to make disciples. Disciples, or those who submit to someone to learn from them, right? And here it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, I've got some more questions we need to answer here that will help us. And this first, all-important question is: To whom does this command to make disciples apply to? Who does it apply to? To the apostles alone, the eleven? Does it some say that's possible? To just leaders? Does it just just leaders? Is it to every believer individually that this command is being commanded to? If it is, we got a lot of disobedient people out there. I don't think everyone's doing that. I don't think everyone's baptizing. I don't think everyone's teaching. Well, we'll see. So it's the case. We need to know that, right? Or is it to the church corporately? But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, verse 16, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we'll get to the authority piece in a minute. Don't worry about that. We need to see that. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So who does it apply to? Apostles, leaders, all believers individually or church corporately? Well, if it's every believer, uh, if if every believer is to be going and making disciples of all the nations, uh, that's interesting. Is it for all the apostles, church, individual? Well, strictly, initially, this was to the eleven that were there, right? That's really clear. Jesus gave them his commands. And, uh, but if its command was for just the eleven, oh, so a garbage can under my pulp there. If it was for just the eleven, we got a problem. We got a lot of disobedient, uh, apostles that never went into the world, that never went Take a look at Acts chapter 8. They stayed in Jerusalem. They would be quite disobedient if this was just for them, wouldn't it be, right? Acts chapter 8. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's speaking of Stephen. And on that day, great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, except the apostles. Later on, they have have their little meeting, their little uh, Jerusalem council. They stayed in Jerusalem. Well, were some of these apostles, besides Peter and, and, and Paul, you know, Saul, Paul, were, were, they, were they disobedient? It would be Peter in that because he was in that group. Were, they, he, were the other ones disobedient because they didn't disciple the nations? Okay, something to think about. What about the women there? Did they go around baptizing? What about many of you? How many have you actually baptized and taught? How many have you personally gone out and baptized and taught? It says, make disciples baptizing and teaching. If this is for everybody individually, that doesn't seem like that makes sense. It's got to be something different. It obviously is not for simply the apostles, because later on he's going to say, uh, and lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Well, they died. So it would certainly include those who would be living to the end of the age. So with that in mind, uh, we need to be careful. A lot of people use this to speak of discipleship programs. And if you don't disciple, you're a bad guy. If you aren't, you're not not holding up to the Great Commission because you're not discipling people. You're a bad guy. Really, there's people that give that pressure on there. They have their discipleship programs that you better be doing this. But is that for everybody to be doing? Making disciples seems to be something a little different. Now, I'm going to posit to you that we should all be doing these things at times in different ways. We should be teaching one another, women teaching women. Um, Men should be teaching, right? We should be teaching our children. There's things we should be doing. But here, specifically, of making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. So is it directly for each of us? You know, I don't think the answer is easy, but I think we can gain understanding on what happened in the day of Pentecost. The Lord brought forth a mystery that he he had alluded to, the church. And he is the head over the church, and all authority is his. Matthew 16, we saw that. Um, He says that uh, on this rock I'll build my church. My church, it's his church. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go there and make disciples. So who is the command for? Could it be this command is not an individual command to every believer? Could it be it's not simply just for the 11? Could it be that this is a command for the entire church, the body of Christ? Right? So with this in mind, notice our passage right off the bat. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, and here we see that they came, and they heard the command. They were there, but there were others there too. But this meeting seemed to be centered around the apostles. We know from scripture that the apostles were the foundation of the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So Jesus is giving this command to the foundation. And we see that it's going to go beyond the foundation. It's going to go beyond the foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the foundation. We don't keep building the foundation. That's built. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing to a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The apostles and prophets laid forth the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone, and it appears that the mission of the church was being given here to the apostles, initially to them. I'm coming to believe as I study this that this commission is for the church as a whole, and each part of the body has different parts to play, and that has different giftings to bring about this great commission, as we're going to say that each part has different parts. The body body of Christ in concert, not as individuals, but those who are working together. Obviously, not everyone is commanded to baptize. Not everyone is commanded to teach. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? Right? Right? 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10. Let's turn there. We have differing gifts, but we are all one body, members of one body under the head, Jesus Christ. And I would venture to say that Jesus Christ was giving his command for the church here after he had risen from the dead. Yes, it is a great commission in that sense, but it's not maybe what we think it is. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10 as each one, that's individually, has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, 1 Peter 4:11, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I also mentioned that he says in the end of this, the Lord Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. This cannot be simply for the 11 apostles. It has to be, I believe, for the church, I believe in some manner. His church that should be functioning from the day of Pentecost until he would come again for them in the end of the age, right? So it's my premise, the head of the church, this is a command from the head of the church for the church The whole body, many parts, and this would explain why some apostles felt no need to run out and disciple the nations. They were functioning where they were in their foundational place at that moment. Now, having laid the foundation of that which is to be taught and thus obeyed, There are differing gifts in the body of Christ to bring about a unified result for the glory of God. Not all gifts are the same. Some may have gifts of service, some of support in that sense serving, some pastors, teachers. Uh, We see this for the equipping of the saints, but we see the goal is to bring it all up into the focus and uh, maturity uh, uh, stature that belongs to Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. For verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Remember that? That's some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Those are these gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we obtain, here's the goal, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're got to be taught to be built up and matured, right? As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by which every joint by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there isn't space, and you're probably if you have an evangelist, gift evangelist, you're probably going, yikes, or whatever it might be. Don't get me wrong, we all have a responsibility to share the gospel when the Lord opens the doors. We're going to see that. We're going to see that. We need to be ready to give an account, rather than just pouring out our testimonies all over the street. We need to allow our light to shine in such a manner that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We should be praying for open doors for the word, right? Certainly we see that. But the supreme goal of the church is not to make converts, but disciples. This is what Jesus said. He didn't say make converts. He said disciples, disciples. Those are those who will glorify God, having been taught the word of God, and then obeying it. That's what the the goal of the church is. So we're going to see. To be taught God's word and obey his word. To be those who obey his word. And from that, God uses that. Think about what we see in the book of Acts. We don't see every believer in the book of Acts sharing their faith with everyone they can share it with. In general, since you see a few people going out and sharing the gospel, right? That's the gifting that they have. In the book of Acts, we in the contrast to the great numbers getting saved, we see certain individuals such as Peter, John, Philip, Barnabas, Paul, specially gifted by God and empowered by God to do this evangelistic work in new areas where the gospel had not been shared. We see him evangelizing. Then we see him teaching the word. We see Paul spending long periods of time, such as in Corinth for two years, Acts 18. We see him in Ephesus for three years, Acts 19 and 20. Not everyone was evangelizing, but everyone was being built up. I'm not saying we don't evangelize. God makes different gifts. And we are also those who should have, through his life living out in us the opportunity to share christ when they see we have hope when we see that but not everyone's evangelizing but everyone was being built up it's the exact same pattern we see in the epistles god's people being saved being built up by the word of god the focus is not evangelism but sanctification yes we need to come to faith before we can be sanctified yes but that's not the focus Yes, in Scripture we see that is a glorious, wonderful thing. He will make you fishers of men. It's a glorious, wonderful thing to have the privilege, how blessed are the feet who bring good news. Wonderful, glorious thing. But God is the one who sends those people with those feet where he wants them to go. And we see even in, Acts, in Romans chapter 10, how will they hear without a preacher? That context. Take, for instance, what we see in First Peter. There's no call for every believer to be evangelized. And I'm not saying we don't do that, and please don't get me wrong. But we are to be holy instead. You see, it's much easier to go out and share Christ than to be holy. I'll say that right now. To actually obey the Lord in every area of your life, to learn to obey him in everything he said, that's a pretty high calling. The Lord will enable us to do it if we do it, if we trust him. But we're to be ready. We are to grow up in respect to salvation as a holy temple being built up, First Peter 2. We are to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts, being ready because we're different. Now, we're not different if Christ isn't living in us and we're not obeying his word. But we're going to be different. We're going to have opportunities to share why we have hope, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, this passage did bug me for a while, First Peter 3, in light of such a great evangelistic push in the church these days. Why why, why wait for someone to ask you for the hope when you should just be evangelizing? Now, again, I'm not saying that we don't share the gospel and there are not evangelists. There are those who have been given that gifting that's part of how they function in the body of Christ. But we need to be careful, and it's my my thought that the church has taken discipleship and thrown it out and made evangelism the big thing. And therefore you have churches of people who don't obey the Lord, and half the evangelism isn't even really evangelism. You have these churches that are, that are anemic, biblically speaking, never reflecting the glory of the Lord, stumbling people more than those who supposedly get saved. If we study the book of Acts and the epistles, we're forced to come to the conclusion that the Great Commission does not simply apply to every believer individually and equally. There's different pieces and parts as the church as a whole. So with that in mind, we need to understand that. But there is something that does apply to every believer. There is something that applies to every believer in the Great Commission. Now, first of all, before we get to that, let's look at the basis for the command. Notice what he says here in the end of verse, let's just go to verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. I believe that them is the 11 in this context. And said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Remember, Jesus fully carried out the Father's will. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he was highly exalted back to his rightful place, right? We see that. Uh, we have it in Ephesians or in a Philippians chapter 2, that because of his death and his obedience and unto, the, unto death and a cross, therefore God highly exalted and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Peter would say in the day of Pentecost, therefore let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has all authority, it's his church. and he is, as we will see, with us. And when you think about that, you think he is all authority, and he's telling us to do something we can't, for lack of a better term, lose. If we do what he says, he's giving us clear instructions as a church what to do. And if we abide in him and do it, we are doing what is right. And he is on our side. We've got to know what we should be doing in the church. We've got to know what we should be doing. Now, certainly, we should be loving. We'll see that. That's part of it. If you're going to obey him, you're going to love him. What's this? He started that command from the beginning, right? It goes and encompasses everything. So he says here, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples. It is based on Jesus' all encompassing authority as God, this command. Now, another question we need to ask, who is to be discipled? Notice he says here, the sphere, first of all, make disciples of all the nations. The nations, the ethnos. This speaks of Gentile nations. The sphere of discipleship now is the nations. Jesus said so. You see, God's plan moved away from Israel temporarily to the Gentiles, when the Jews rejected Jesus, Romans 11, and yes, there would be a transition from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the outermost parts, Jesus said, you'd be my witnesses, Acts 1.8. So God's plan has moved from the Gentiles, uh, Jews to the Gentiles. So does this mean we don't uh, evangelize Jews? Well, p- of course not. Paul said he took it to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. But he didn't stay at the Jews. Sorry, Jews for Jesus. Go to the Gentiles too. You see that biblically. We share with them first, and then we go. The Great Commission is to the ethnos. It's to the nations. It's to the nations. And it is to make disciples of the nations. Here we see that. Baptizing them in the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here, the first thing we have to do is baptize. What does that mean? Baptism spoke of an outward action of being placed into water, coming out of someone who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. They would identify with Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection publicly. They've come to faith. They're not saying, I'm not sure if I like Jesus or not. I think I do. Maybe I'm not sure. They are, I am following Jesus Christ I believe in him. I've died to my old life. I've been risen in newness of life. That's what that symbolism is in baptism. So first of all, we don't disciple non-believers. The church should not be having non-believers in teaching them on biblical principles. They need to get saved. And primarily how they're going to be saved is by being convicted of their sin and the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So first of all, we are identifying, making sure that who we're discipling, they're saved. They're saved. You see, baptism implies that the gospel's been shared and someone has been saved. Acts chapter 14. Uh, after they had preached, verse 21, the gospel in that city had made many disciples. They returned to Iconium, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations, must enter end the kingdom of God. They heard the word of God, they got saved, making disciples. Those who have committed, they're committed to submitting to the authority of Christ to learn from him. You know, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't just say, okay, I believe and I'm going to do my own thing. There's a heart change. So baptism signifies an inward reality of an outward symbolism of an inward reality. So now the question is, uh, who is to be discipled? Obviously, it's those who are saved. But here again, we see that the church individually doesn't do everything. And I asked this question earlier: How many people have you baptized? How many have you baptized? The command is to the baptize. They're baptizing and teaching. We know Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Union, Munich, Acts 8. Peter was involved in the baptism of Cornelius and family Acts chapter 10. Paul was involved in the baptism of Lydia and her family, Acts 16. It's apparent that Paul baptized some that he forgot about in 1 Corinthians 1. And so here, when it comes to discipleship, we're not to disciple non believers. But it's not everyone who's baptizing, it's the church, again, functioning properly together. Functioning properly together. So, how is it done? We'll finish up with this. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. You're affirming they're saved in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we have a threefold statement of the Trinity, Trinitarian formula here. It is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And so we come to the crux now, the Great Commission here. He says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe. So here, the crux is, and I believe this is one of the most blatantly ignored scriptures in the Bible. They say it, they have it on their website everywhere, and it is ignored day in and day out. Teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Jesus, being God, commanded them, right? These are the 11 apostles initially. He brought forth the word to them and through them. We see this God's word manifest in the scriptures that the apostles and prophets brought forth that equips us for every good work. All scriptures inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3:16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We're going to get to this in Colossians 1, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man that we represent every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I labor and strive also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. We know that we are to, like newborn babes, long for the pure mark of the word, that we may grow in respect to salvation, First Timothy 2. It's the word of God that equips us for every good work. It is pastors and teachers doing that through what the apostles brought forth in the word of God, Christ being the cornerstone, apostles and prophets there, bringing forth the word and the lord has set a priority on teaching in the church. well obviously if the great commission is to teach them all that he that he commanded then teaching must be a priority. 1st corinthians 12:20 god has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, that's the foundation, third teachers. priority. priority. So the church is to be making disciples, learners, those who submit to learn, teaching the word of God to the saved. This is our calling, and there's different pieces and parts to make this work. There's different members, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. It's not just a few selected scriptures, it's the whole counsel of God. It's the word of God present every man complete in Christ. This is what God is doing in his church. And although there are different parts of the body of Christ, not all teach, every part with differing gifts works together for the main goal, which is to glorify Christ uh, through what is being taught that we would obey it and bring him glory and honor. Do you think a church that doesn't obey what Jesus says is glorifying to God? Not at all. He says here, this is the Great Commission. This is it, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Yes, there needs to be evangelism. And part of the body will do that. And the rest of the body will be ready to do it. But here, the main purpose is teaching them. Now, don't forget this. There's something that we forget. Some people get taught, but they never observe. Teaching them to observe, teaching them—that means you're 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 reproving, you're correcting, you're teaching them to actually do it, not just to hear it. Hearers of the word are deluded, James one, merely hearers. The term observe here, tereo, means to keep, it means to obey. So my job is to teach you to obey God's word, and your job is to support that teaching in the differing gifts so that we would all be built up, right? That we would obey everything that he said. Discipleship is teaching those who have outwardly professed faith in Jesus Christ as exhibited by baptism to obey the Lord's word. That's the Great Commission. That's what we are doing. And oh, how wrong some missions organizations have been, how wrong churches have been, where they see the Great Commission as simply evangelism. Yes, there needs to be evangelism to get to this point, but that's not the main focus. Evangelism is the precursor to the Great Commission. It is not the Great Commission. It is the precursor. Disciples are those who have placed themselves under the authority of Jesus to learn from him and obey. You see, if you are a believer and you're not obeying God's word, then maybe you're not a believer. John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Hey, if we by and large obey the Lord, we're not perfectly. If we say we have no sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we have a purpose here as the church to be taught to obey everything Jesus said. And then that's going to live out in the world. We're going to be lights in the world. We're going to be Christ manifest in the world, right? Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? Something's wrong there. Jesus said, say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So then, I think the church is missed by being deceived, or misled uh knowingly misled by evil men and impostors, to emphasize elements of the Great Commission over others. And I mentioned I began in the beginning of talking about this. When something is overemphasized in one area, even though it's true, that's not true in total. When we need to know that and understand that. He Jesus is the one we're obeying and follow, and that's how Satan hooks people. Yes. Okay. So then as we finish, notice the last portion of here, and it 's really wonderful for us. he says in lo i 'm with you always even to the end of the age. We need to know that it is not easy to follow jesus it 's difficult there 's the sufferings for the glories to follow it 's the good fight of faith it 's difficult to obey him you 're swimming upstream everything 's against you, the world, the flesh, and the devil it 's difficult, but know that he is with you always." even to the end of the age. Literally all the days. Literally he says, I'm with you all the days. The Lord's with us. Remember he said that he would not leave us orphans. He would send his spirit to us. John 14. And The New Testament teaches that if we believe in him, we receive his spirit. He's with us. Hebrews 13, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with us. So the great commission is for all of us to fulfill, not individually, but corporately, as God has decided through the manifold gifting he has given the church that each individual part would work for his glory. And as the word dwells in us and God enables us to do it, he is with us to the end of the age. And lastly, does that mean we don't evangelize? Of course not. We share the gospel. When the Lord opens the door, we want people to be saved. But the foundation of salvation from the church is us obeying the Lord, and the Lord takes us where he wants us to be and does what he wants us to do and say what he wants us to say. But if we're not obeying everything, then there's, that's not him working on us. A light on the hill cannot be hidden. So then we've seen the Great Commission is based on the Lord's authority. It's based on his command to make disciples by teaching the saved uh, to obey all of his word. And I believe it's for the whole church. So how does it apply to us? We need to cleanse our minds of bad thinking. We can get excited about ministries and, you know, they're exciting, but if they're wrong, they're wrong. We need to see things rightly. The focus of the body of Christ is to make disciples. So my question is, are you being made a disciple? Are you being taught to obey all that Jesus said? If you're not, something's wrong. Either your leadership has failed you or they're not the Lord's leadership, or you have chosen to be in a place where you're not where you're not being taught, I encourage you to repent and get about his great commission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, thank you that this is your desire for us, that we would be taught all that your son has said and that we would obey. We would be taught to obey. Lord, I thank you that you are teaching us to obey, that you're changing us. And I pray that we would have the right attitude towards things. i I pray we wouldn't become arrogant with truth and point our fingers at ministries. Lord, I pray that we would just be gracious and kind and allow you to teach us that we would obey you. And I pray that this church would do so together uh, for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.